each other in so long. Maybe like me this morning, you even walked out of the house without your Bible. So, so I've got, luckily we're in a church. So if anyone else needs a Bible, they're hidden in the back room there. Um, except for this one's NIV and I always have RSV. So might get a little messed up. Okay, so the holidays are over. And most of it, and the snow is gone. Anybody still have any snow? Oh my gosh. Okay, wow. All right, well, we live in a gully, so it's long gone. The snow is mostly gone, and um, we have all come off an extended period of family time, for better or for worse. We had a little better, and we had some worse, and actually, the little bonus you guys get for actually coming to Women at the Well in person today is you get to hear this story, because we're going to turn off the recorder. Right now? Oh, wait. Uh, first, let me say, Eastside Academy is now next week. Next week. Because it was too much. So next week, Eastside Academy. Okay, now we'll turn off the recorder. I'm just going to pause it. We'll see okay, if it works. Pause. Okay. Obadiah is a book about siblings fighting, right? in both a literal and a figurative sense, it's about siblings fighting. And the prophecy is framed as this diatribe against Edom, the nation descended from Esau, because of Edom's behavior toward Judah. And Judah, of course, was descended from Jacob, right? Um, oh, I forgot I have slides. Okay. If you remember from Genesis 25, Isaac is the son of Abraham. And Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, have two sons, twins. And the Lord tells Rebekah, he says, Two nations are in your womb. Two separate peoples shall issue from your body. One people shall be mightier than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So these brothers, Jacob and Esau, Jacob being the younger and Esau the older, they had a stormy relationship to say the least, right? I am sure Rebekah also sat around and worried about them becoming estranged and everybody going to hell because there was no grace or forgiveness or reconciliation in this family. And she wouldn't have been far off at certain points in their story. Though, of course, there's also one of the beautiful reconciliation stories in the Bible is Jacob and Esau. Um, but when the actual brothers are long dead, the nations descended from each of them continue to have a stormy relationship. And so here we are in Obadiah. Okay, first some notes. Oh. I don't know, you probably can't see a thing about that. That's just a family tree. And it, um, we've got Abraham in the top left, and then Isaac about center, and then his two sons. And on the left side is Esau, and on the right side is Jacob, and then everybody who's descended from each side. So you have these chiefs of Edom that get mentioned in the Bible, and then, of course, you have uh, Judah and its kings and such. So, anyhow, that's what that all says. Okay, so some context. Um, this is set around the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. So you remember first the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered, right? And then Judah held out. Yeah! But then Babylon came and conquered Judah. And so that finally happened. Here's a nice, nice picture of Obadiah. Nobody knows what it looks like, but, you know, probably like that. Um, okay, the author, we don't know about this author. Um, oh, I was supposed to say about the context. Yes. Long, horrible siege. The king and his sons of Judah get their eyes gouged out. The temple is destroyed. This is the first temple. Solomon's temple is destroyed in that conquest. And lots of people get dragged off into exile, you remember. 
And while all this is happening, apparently Edom did not kind of sit idly by on the sidelines. Okay, author. We don't know who Obadiah is. It just means servant of the Lord. There's several Obadiahs in the Old Testament. Uh, one of is in 1 Kings 17, and he's kind of the most prominent guy. So they say, oh, maybe it was him. But, you know, we don't know. And um, sources, they say, oh, there's some similarities to Jeremiah 49, 7 to 22, where they're both kind of going on against Edom. And maybe one borrowed from the other, maybe the other borrowed from the one. We don't know. Whatever. Okay, and then the interpretations have been uh, changing throughout history. So, of course, the original context, you have Judah and you have Edom, and they are angry at each other, or at least Judah is angry at Edom, right? Um, but later interpretations said, oh, you can read this to be Edom is an analog for Rome, right? Because um, it was Rome, under Rome, that the second temple was destroyed. So you have these parallels of the destruction of the temple and the center of worship and who was responsible. And so is Edom also kind of this analog for Rome? <clears throat> and then, and then, oh, is Edom an analog, you know, it, this is a Jewish interpretation, is Edom an analog for the Christians and how they treated us, right? Um, so the whole idea stemmed from after the conquest, and then there was kind of like, oh, there's a lot more space now up where Judah was now that they're gone, right? And so Edom kind of moved in and took over some of the land in the southern area. Um, if I had thought about it, I would have put a map up there, but I didn't think that. Okay, so they kind of moved up there, and then they became known as the Idumeans, and I might be saying that wrong, Idumeans, right? And it is the Idumeans that uh, people like Herod the Great came from. So you can see how it kind of made this transition to being equated with the Romans. Because, of course, Herod the Great was considered, you know, this yicky sort of collaborator, not real Jewish guy, because look how he collaborates with Rome, right? Um, so people who benefited from partnership with Rome. And so, but, like, but you know, like most Bible passages, Obadiah spoke to his contemporaries and then continued to speak to people at different points in time. And so we'll see if he still has anything to say to us. Okay, and then the use. Just interesting, um, you know, there are several sort of branches of Judaism, and in the Sephardic and the Yemenite Jewish traditions, they read the book of Obadiah, you know, they kind of read through the Torah, right, the first five books of Moses, and in those traditions, Obadiah is the, so you have, you read from the books of Moses, and then you have a reading from the prophets, right? And in those traditions, when they get to those parts in Genesis that are about Jacob and Esau, sometimes the readings for some of them are from Obadiah, right? So they, they, they put them together, right? Here's these brothers, here they were in history, here's how they kind of played out on an allegorical, metaphorical, and historical um, storyline, right? Okay, so very interesting. Um, yes, you have the passage from a book of Moses and passage from the prophets to dialogue with the Moses passage. Um, and so the prophetic reading, it seems like it's hard if you were hearing those two together. It kind of sounds like, in your face, Esau, because that's sort of what Obadiah has to say today, right? In your face, Esau. Um, interesting, in the Ashkenazi Jewish tradition, They'll do the Jacob and Esau Genesis readings, and then uh, they're more usually paired with Hosea, which is a much more gentle response. Like, 
reconciliation, right? Not in your face, Esau, but they'll do a little over Um, Okay, so let's get into it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem has fallen. Edom took part in the destruction. How does God feel about them? Okay. Obadiah 2 through 4. I'm going to read it off my computer because that will be RSV. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. He's speaking to Edom. I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, whose dwelling is high, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, thence I will bring you down, says the Lord. Okay, so Edom was kind of situated up in higher ground, in the heights, and God is saying, you know what? Defensively, that looks like a great place to live, but even from there, you will be brought down. You will be brought low. And how bad will it be when it comes? Edom is going to be stripped bare in verse 5. He says, even the, he says, even thieves, when they break into a house, they'll leave a few things behind, right? And even when people harvest a field, they'll leave some gleanings, right? But you will be completely stripped bare. There will be nothing. It'll be worse than when the thieves and the harvesters come through. It says, Edom, you are going to be betrayed by your allies, those you thought were intimate and confederates. In verse 7, you know, those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, right? These people you hung out with and you thought you were on great terms, they will betray you, Edom. He says, Edom will be without any wise leadership. Verse 8. Right? Verse 8. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding, right? They'll, so they'll have some leaders, but there's no wisdom going on up there, right? The blind leading the blind. And he said, your warriors will be demoralized and they will be slaughtered. So this is a bad thing to hear, right? In a very warlike time. Your warriors, they'll be not only killed, but they'll be also demoralized, which <laughs> might have led to them being killed, right? And then finally, he says, the nation will be disgraced and cease to exist. And finally, Edom was sort of absorbed, right? He became Idumea, and then after a while, Idumea doesn't even get mentioned. They kind of get absorbed. So they cease to exist. Okay, so why? Why have these horrible things happened? Or why will they happen, right? Oh my gosh, this will be an eye test. I might lead you to NIV. Okay, this is verses 10 through 15. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You shouldn't gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Okay, so this is the problem, right? For the outrage to your brother Jacob, 
We know from this line that what Edom did or did not do on that terrible day was especially offensive to God because of their brother relationship, right? And because they were brothers, this is especially bad in God's eyes. And we don't have to read much of the Bible or read many books in general or have many children to realize that siblings can be worse to each other than strangers, right? <laughs> Maybe this Christmas you realize siblings can be worse to each other than strangers, right? Can say things to each other that strangers would not say to each other. Um, so think of the Bible. You know, right there from the get-go, the first pair of brothers, Cain and Abel, what do they do? One kills the other one, right? Then we have Jacob and Esau. Then we have Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery because they're jealous of him. We have Amnon raping Tamar, and then Absalom going and killing Amnon, having Amnon killed, right? Um, we have, even in the New Testament, we have the, the parable of the prodigal son, and that is a sibling rivalry story, right? Tacked on at the end, there is the older brother jealous of the prodigal son. We have Jesus going about his business and someone in the crowd yelling out to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, right? Siblings have a tough time getting along sometimes. Some of you are thinking, oh, that must be terrible. I want to get along with it. Good for you. Hooray. And, and I, like I said, my sister and I, until we both went to college, oh my gosh, hair pulling, kicking, screaming, slamming doors, all kinds of stuff. And pretty much we've done pretty well since that time, you know. And so that's why it's especially discouraging to see so-and-so and so-and-so fighting. It's like, what if you was in college? This is supposed to be over, at least in my experience. Um, Okay, so nothing has changed over thousands of years. If you are discouraged about your relationship with your siblings, do not be discouraged. You are not alone, right? The Bible says you are not alone. Siblings still fight over parental attention, uh, real or perceived favoritism, right? Real or perceived injustices. Um, for Edom, descended from Esau, how maddening those Israelite stories must have been. Right? With their kind of, yeah, dad loves me best, right? We stole the blessing from you. Look how much more blessed we are than you, right? Um, you know, we are descended from the clever one who stole the birthright and the blessing, and you are descended from the dumb ox who sold it all for a bowl of stew, right? I mean, how annoying of a brother is that? That is horrible, right? Jacob. For a long while, it was a horrible character, not somebody you really want in your life. Um, so can you really blame Edom for not feeling too bad when their braggart of a little brother finally gets taken down a peg, right? For gloating. Edom was gloating. Ah, right? Edom was jeering, right? Edom was gazing in glee. I love that. Yeah, do your kids ever gaze in glee when one gets in trouble? <laughs> um, can you blame Edom for taking a few items to himself, right? I mean, the second Jackson moved out this fall, Lucy rearranged his furniture and moved in, right? And now she gets two rooms. And we were just talking about how we're going to convert it to her sewing room. So, um, so yeah, when one sibling gets moved out, the other one moves in. That's how it works. And yet God says, as you did, Edom, so shall it be done to you. Your conduct, Edom, shall be requited, right? It's like, well, God, why? This is so natural, right? Why? Why, why come down so hard on Edom? Um, why, did, why was it 
what Edom did, right? Why does God have to speak so harshly? The prophet Malachi will say later, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, right? Why does that verse even do it in there? Why, 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 why? Um, I think there are a few things to learn here. Um, first, is that God's punishment of Israel and Judah did not mean he stopped loving them, right? Or that he took any pleasure in what was happening to them. You know, anyone, parents remember there was always that cliche, this hurts me more than it hurts you, like in your wallet, right? But anyone with kids can tell you that disciplining is not a fun part of the job. Everybody hates it, right? It's not a fun part of the job. Um, I would way rather have my children choose to do what is right than to have to meet out these consequences for when they do things wrong, right? I would much rather they not do the wrong things in the first place. So, right, God's punishment of, of Israel and then Judah did not mean he took pleasure in it. It did not mean he stopped loving them. On the contrary, right? If you stop loving your kids, you just think, well, all right, bye. You know, go do whatever you want with your life. I don't care. Right? And if one child is gleeful and jeering at the child being punished, it may be understandable, but it's not an attractive trait. Like, this is not something you want to encourage in your children. You may understand that, ha, 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 but you don't think, isn't that adorable? Right? You don't think that. Right? So we need to put ourselves in God's shoes and understand why this makes him so angry. Um, number two. The chosen nature of Jacob did not mean Esau was not loved, right? But rather that, that God reserves the sovereign right to choose whom he will choose and to save how he will save, right? God gets that right. He gets to choose whom he will choose and save how he will save. He is God. So if he tells Abraham, Blessings from all nations will come through Abraham's family. That means it ain't coming through anyone else's family, right? God chose Abraham, and he said, I choose you, and I choose your family to bless the entire world. And that means all the rest of our families, we were not the chosen families, right? If he chooses the younger son, Jacob, with his unpromising, dishonest character, it means it is God shaping our salvation, right? Not primogeniture, right? And not Jacob's own sterling resume. It's not like, oh, aren't you a deer? I'm going to pick you because you're a deer, right? It's like, oh my gosh, you are especially hopeless. I'm going to pick you, and then everyone will say, this is God at work, right? This ain't Jacob. This is God at work, okay? And this pattern goes all throughout history with God doing the choosing and the unchoosing. Not us and not the wishes of the unchosen. We don't get to decide who God chooses, right? So he chooses David, not Saul. He chooses David and not his strapping, also very handsome older brothers, right? He chooses poor teenage unmarried Mary from Nowhereville in Galilee to bear the savior of the world. God chooses. He chooses 12 not particularly rich or successful or educated or promising young men to be Jesus' first followers, right? He chooses, finally, one vindictive, murderous Christian hater to be Jesus' most 
famous apostle. God does the choosing throughout history, and he reserves that right to himself, to choose whom he will choose and save how he will save. Um, I have a slide that says that. Okay. And it does not mean that, that the chosen, um, it doesn't mean the chosen are unloved when they get punished. It doesn't mean the unchosen are unloved, right? From the very beginning, God chooses the chosen in order to save all of us because he loves all of us, right? You only need to save the whole world if you love the whole world. If you only love the chosen one, you would just never mind about everybody else, right? But God's plan from the very beginning is, Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless everybody in the entire world. God chooses the chosen because he loves all of us. You know, what does the father say to the jealous older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, right? He says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Whether we feel favored or celebrated at the moment, or whether we feel neglected and jealous of how God is treating others versus us, right? God says, you are all my children. You are all my children. You are all with me, right? You are always with me and everything I have is yours, right? Chosen or not chosen, you are always with me, you are always loved. There is no part of himself or of the riches of his wisdom and love that he does not willingly share with us. So when we feel jealous, when we feel unchosen, when we look and say, God, why are you so much nicer to that person than me? God, why are you so... Nice, so much nicer to my sibling than you are to me, right? God says, I am not like that, right? Whether you feel it or not, you are loved as well. Whether you feel it or not, you are equally entitled to my blessings, right? Whether you feel chosen or not. Okay. So finally, it matters to God how we brothers treat each other. Um, you know, statistically speaking, siblings are our only lifelong relationships, right? You know each other from day one, and, you know, barring some terrible tragedy, right? You are there uh, longer than parents are, than most friends are, right? Longer than relationships with grandchildren or children are the siblings. Um, so when Holly and Lee, when so-and-so and so-and-so were fighting, <laughs> I tried to remind her of this, right? And her response was, well, I'll still have the third sibling, right? <laughs> I'll still, you know. And then I pictured, oh my gosh, you know, and we're fighting over and, you know, forming allegiances and horrible things. Um, so, as a parent, it is a particular grief to see your children, whom you love, fighting or estranged. And it grieves God as well, right? Therefore, he is angry with Edom, and he is willing also to discipline that nation. Okay. So that's the whole Jacob and Eden thing, right? And then the book of Obadiah expands its scope from there, and it goes beyond just two warring nations to talk about all warring nations. Okay, this is in 15b. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, not just Edom, all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, all the nations round about shall drink. They shall drink and stagger, and shall be as though they had not been. 
But in Mount Zion there shall be those that escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor to the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Okay, we go beyond just Esau, though Esau is still there, right, to look at all the nations. And Obadiah is looking beyond his moment in history to where Judah, his moment in history is Judah, you are defeated, you are demoralized, you're exiled, right? Um, and your brother Edom is looking on and snickering, right? Obadiah looks beyond that to the final reckoning. When all the nations will face judgment for their behavior toward the kingdom of God, right? Not just to little Judah, but to the kingdom of God. Here's where we go big and metaphorical. God's kingdom, as Jesus taught, is the final flowering of what began with Isaac, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, with the nation of Israel and the house of David, right? All these things were kind of links in the chain, and the final flowering was his kingdom of God. And so God's kingdom went beyond this literal, historical thing to metaphorical and eternal, as Jesus said. He said, my kingdom is not of this world, right? We've gone beyond that now. Um, although it will continue to expand through this world. So the punishment of Judah that Obadiah witnessed, right, would leave a remnant on Zion's mount, right? And because of the holiness of that mountain, because of the choosing of God, the remnant, he says, they're going to come back and take hold again, and they will continue their mission of bringing God's kingdom to earth. So he says, you know, because of the holiness of Mount Zion, this will happen. This little remnant will come back, and God will pick up the chain and link it again, and this tiny remnant of Judah is going to keep on being chosen and keep on carrying the plan. Verses 19 to 21. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah, I don't know how you say these things, probably you don't either, and the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exile in Hala, who are of the people of Israel, shall possess Phoenicia, as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who, is a, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. What? So these verses are referring to Israel regaining its lost land. So coming back from exile, as we knew they did. And so they regained the lost land, and then some, right? These boundaries get pushed out a little. But then that final line, the kingdom shall be the Lord's, right? Ties it to God's greater salvation, right? Yes, the exiles are going to return. Don't worry. They're going to get the land back. But that's because something greater is at stake, right? My plan to save the world is marching on. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. And it will be tied to God's greater salvation. That The whole verse of, um, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? God's kingdom is meant to expand beyond the historical and the literal. So from God's perspective, he says all nations are brothers, right? And on that last day, on that judgment day, just like Joseph's brothers came down and bowed to him in Egypt, all the nations, that's us, all the nations will acknowledge that salvation came through that one brother, right? Through the 
through those chosen ones, right? We're all going to bow down on that last day and say, you know, oh, didn't come through my family, right? Salvation came through that one family, that one line. Um, as Jesus told the Samaritan, yeah, we are the unchosen nations, just in case you didn't know. We are not the chosen ones. Um, and uh, Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you remember, he says, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Right? He said, this is the plan. God gets to choose. Salvation is coming, and it is coming from the Jews, not from other places. Right? So to think that salvation will come through any other means than the means God has chosen in his sovereignty is to get hold of the wrong end of the stick. God chooses how and when and why, and he chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Jesus. He chose the Jews. And finally, he chose one particular Jew, Jesus. So just like... of Jacob, this news continues to irritate and anger the non-chosen. Jesus tells Thomas, this is John 14, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? God gets to choose, and he has chosen the Jews, and he has chosen this Jew, right? People object to that. People find that offensive and exclusive, right? It's not like, oh, Edom was so bad. We still do this. We say, ew, I, why does it have to be that way? Why does God have to choose how he chooses and not choose how he doesn't choose, right? We still have the same problem. And yet God chose the Jews, and God chose finally this particular Jew, not because he didn't love all the rest of us too, but because he did, right? Because he loved all the rest of us too. And this is how he chose to save the world and the nations he loves, right? By choosing the few among us and finally choosing the one. Right? So let's pray. Father in heaven, sometimes we as siblings or we as parents or we as grandparents or whatever, or we as children, Lord, we have experienced the, the jealousy and the anger towards siblings or toward even our brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, when we feel like someone has been given more than we have been given or um, has been harried less than we have been harried, Lord. Sometimes we get jealous and resentful. Would you forgive us? Would you help us love our brothers and sisters? Lord, we also, sometimes we question your right to choose who you choose and to, to save how you choose to save, Father. And I pray, Father, that you would help us be humble and just um, help us understand, Father. Um, and just be grateful that you did choose and you chose because you loved all of us and you wanted to save all of us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your gift of the Jews. We thank you for so, so long ago choosing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Lord, and this whole long plan that you put in place to save all of us because you love us. We thank you for that. Help us be kinder to our brothers and sisters, Lord, and um, not gloat when they are down and not rejoice when they are down, but um, but see them as brothers and sisters also loved by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.